the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back Friday, December 17th, as we head into Hour 2 of our daily three-hour tour. It is an honor, privilege, and delight to bring back an old, dear friend, Dr. Ken Masugi. He is a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. He has a lot to his credit and his credentials, a teacher at U.S. Air Force Academy, Princeton, James Madison College, and uh, a prolific writer in his own right. He has an essay up at American Greatness I wanted to talk to him about called The War We Must Fight. Ken, welcome back and Merry Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas to you, too. Um, it's, it's always an honor to be called to uh, speak to your distinguished audience. Oh, you're, you're very kind. No, it's, it's an honor to have you, buddy, and it's an honor to continue to learn from you. The War We Must Fight. We may be too weak to fight the anti-war, woke, communist war, you tell us, but it's a war we must prepare for as we ourselves are the enemy. That's kind of the subtitle. And you start with a little lesson from Tocqueville. Would you like to set this up? We're in no rush, so unwind it however you want. Okay. Well, this is one of the saddest essays I've ever had to write uh, because I've had to in a sense, take back uh, much of what I'd written and argued before. Uh, not that I'm, I'm contradicting myself. I, I think uh, the situation has changed, and um, I've had to alter uh, not my beliefs, but the application of those beliefs in a, a time of, of crisis. Is it a situation, as the times are new, we must think anew, kind of like that, or...? Uh, yeah, I think uh, that that Lincolnian uh, uh, precept is uh, most welcome here. Okay. Uh, and so, uh, the the thought I began with is that there are is that these recent trials we've had, uh, beginning with the the trial involving George Floyd, mm-hmm. uh, really shows us a great deal about how America is weak and how America is strong. And I think uh, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, that wonderful French visitor uh, back in the 1830s, uh, really put it very well uh, when he said, what is most repugnant to me in America is not the extreme freedom that reigns there, it is the lack of a guarantee against tyranny. Okay. And, and the trials really uh, uh, show how this could be the case. I, I think there's more optimism to be seen in these trials, especially the acquittal of uh, a Rittenhouse uh, and the conviction of uh, Smollett. Uh, those are very positive signs. Uh, I, I think uh, the trial of... Uh, Officer Chauvin, I think, who showed himself to be very unprofessional, mm-hmm. to 
the least in his uh, attempt to enforce the law, um, was uh, in a sense a kind of show trial. Um, uh, uh, not that uh, George Floyd deserved uh, to be killed um, in the way that he was, but that uh, uh, the, 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 the moralizing of uh, George Floyd, uh, I think, was uh, uh, as though a justification for attacking the police. And we see the consequences of that in the rising uh, tide of crime we're faced with. Now, Ken, when, when you're talking about the, 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 the problem that Tocqueville saw, that the pro- what's repugnant to him is not the extreme freedom that reigns here, but the lack of guarantee against tyranny. What is it that you had to think differently about? I, because I, I have to tell you, when I, when I go back and read that, uh, when I went back to, uh, to uh, Democracy in America where he writes that after you reminded us of that quote – and he's talking, of course, about our jury system and so forth. That would be but one of many different uh, checks and balances here. Do sure. you think that our uh, – is that something you had to rethink, whether our institutions, whether our constitutional design didn't give us a sufficient guarantee against tyranny? Well, or is it uh, something that the people have to also appreciate? And but That's a very good point, Seth. Uh, uh, what we have to rethink – is that uh, the problem of tyranny comes from the majority of the people. Uh, and Tocqueville was very aware that majorities can be manipulated. I mean, that's really one of the problems with democracy, is uh, there's a, a naivete that can often be exploited by ins- unscrupulous people. And uh, I think that's what's gone on uh, in some of the unfortunate trials uh, that we've had and the trials that we haven't had. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, uh, Tocqueville thought that, uh, on the whole, jury trials would be an educational experience. Right. Jurors, and they still are. Yep. Uh, because you see ordinary people, and often they don't want to be there, uh, but uh, they come to common sense conclusions. Um, sometimes they don't. And uh, I think as uh, there's more and more manipulation of uh, not just juries, but the whole uh, democratic experience, uh, that um, we're missing so much of what Tocqueville celebrated uh, 180 years ago. And it's that collapse that I uh, found most distressing in my most recent revisiting of, of his Democracy in America classic. You know where my mind went? We're talking to Ken Masugi, a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, distinguished fellow at the Center for American Greatness, among other things. You know what? where my mind went, Ken, on this? Um, just having having lived through in Los Angeles, maybe you were in L.A. at the time. I, I just don't quite remember our chronology at the, if you were in the L.A. area at the time or not. But during the O.J. Simpson trial, 
Um, my my mind went to a phrase that a lot of people were educated from that trial, a phrase called jury nullification. You're familiar with what jury nullification yeah. is. It's when the jury takes the case and irrespective of facts or law comes in with a not guilty verdict based on some other thing, some other issue. In the case of O.J., it was very clearly they wanted to send a message to who was it, Daryl Gates and the police at the time, I think it was. If it wasn't yeah. Daryl Gates, it was whoever the, the head chief of police was. Maybe Daryl Gates was Rodney King. But they were trying to send a message. Yes. And the yeah. message they sent, one could only conclude, was that racism is worse than homicide, murder, or a double homicide in that case. That's the only thing one could conclude. From what sure. that jury said, especially when that one juror raised the black power fist to O.J. on the not guilty verdict. Marble. Jury nullification is where I went. And I thought about the phrase nullification. If jury nullification, which is a little bit about what is being uh, worried about here, if jury nullification is a problem for that element, it seems to me nullification was the thing that darn near tore this country apart in the first place. And was uh, such an no, a-constitutional... Yeah, go ahead. You see where well, I'm going. Uh, that is that uh, juries can become a tool of irrational passions mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that uh, Tocqueville thought could be moderated right. because the jury, although you have ordinary people in there, um, you also have the guidance of lawyers uh -huh. and judges. Mm -hmm. uh, but... Uh, unfortunately, uh, judges and uh, the legal profession uh, have become part of the problem to such a great extent. Uh, I mean, I'm, lawyer jokes aside, uh, there, there's uh, been a systematic attempt to undermine local law enforcement. Uh, George Soros is a prominent player in this effort. Uh, but uh, you can just see the results in uh, Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, uh, where prosecutors uh, will, uh, and in and, and other uh, localities as well, where prosecutors will decline to prosecute uh, clear violations of the law, uh, arguing that there's some systemic racism that, uh, but they, uh, yeah, they, they have arrogated to themselves the ability to – or the attempted ability to ameliorate by, what, disregarding their own charge and duty and oath of office. Can, uh, can I have to take a quick break? Do you, do you have time for one more segment? There's so much here I'd love to delve into if you do have the time. Yeah. Great. We'll be right back with more from Ken Masugi, his piece over at American Greatness, The War We Must Fight. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Dr. Ken Masugi is our guest. We're talking about his piece at American Greatness, The War We Must Fight. Ken, you'll appreciate this, and then hopefully the audience will appreciate what I'm about to say um, as well. I Every once in a while, I'll get an email from a listener or a call from a listener saying, thank you, Seth, for turning me on to Harry Jaffa. We talk a lot about Harry Jaffa's work here, and they say they bought some books of his. They're trying to get into him. Uh, let me thank you on air and give a Christmas gift uh, plug for your book, The Rediscovery of America, Essays by Harry Jaffa on the New Birth of Politics. If people want to learn about this just tremendous mind of the 
of the 20th century Harry Jeff is that some of us were privileged enough to study with. Uh, Ken's book is a great book. Uh, uh, Ken and his, and, his, and his colleague Ed Erler co-authored The Rediscovery of America, Essays by Harry Jaffe on the New Birth of Politics. Great Christmas gift for those that are inclined to learn, um, learn more about the life of the mind and, and really America. Uh, Ken, I want to talk to you about uh, – we talked about the beginning of your piece. Let me, let me get to the middle and then the ending. And at the middle point, when you're talking about juries and what Tocqueville said about juries and the, and the, and the series of, of cases that have become prominent that we've looked at, some with approval, some with very serious concerns and worries about what juries are doing uh, to help preserve uh, law, constitutionalism in America, it's interesting to me that I'm thinking every single case we're talking about is a case that somehow involves an element of race, one way or another. Now, to be fair and clear, the Chauvin case didn't, in the courtroom and in the case against him, raise the issue of race. They, but right. race was all over, under, and in it. So I don't think it's fair to say it wasn't a case where race was absent. But am I right? All these cases somehow they revolve around or resolve around race, don't they? Uh, yeah. And what does that tell you? Uh, well, that uh, this uh, that slavery, which everyone agrees was an evil. I mean, even people who defended slavery said, "Well, it's it's terrible, but what are you going to do?" Um, uh, and uh, so, but when we deal with that unmistakable evil, slavery, uh, we confuse the evil of slavery with race, with racial discrimination. And they're really two different things, um, because the, the racial issue um, is not simply one of, uh, of, of, of that uh, tyranny of one person over another. Uh, and the, the the tyranny of slavery is, in a sense, a colorblind evil. Uh, but obviously, it was applied to to Africans. Uh, uh, and uh, but Lincoln, for example, in dealing with race, in dealing with slavery, never treated it as a racial issue. Obviously, it uh, the the, the Racial discrimination became an issue after the slaves were freed, but freeing the slaves had to take place on the basis of equality. That is, everyone has natural rights, and that we have to respect those. Uh, and uh, the Biden administration's renunciation of equality in the name of equity, mm -hmm. something called equity, mm -hmm. uh, which really means racial preferences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's all it means, right. going to make things even worse. Uh, so you have, on the one hand, a Democratic Party that has this distorted view of equality, and a Republican Party uh, that uh, has never liked equality because they always said, well, that means socialism, um, which is not completely incorrect. Um, but <laughs> the Declaration of Independence is not a socialist document. Uh, 
Far from it. It's our best protection against socialism. Um, so uh, that's kind of the sad situation we're in today, uh, is that the people with the right hearts uh, don't have the articulate arguments. Uh, and the, the people who have the soft hearts, so to speak, are, um, uh, uh, misunderstand the, the whole concept of equality. So You said something there, Ken, that could initially be seen as highly provocative, slavery and race being two different things. I don't want to mm. put words in your mouth. But it's interesting because up until, I don't know, about 20 or 30 years ago, um, most scholarship probably wouldn't agree with that in 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 the kind of scholarship we got but i've noticed of late when you read what people say about white privilege the people who promote the notion of white privilege when you read their works i read it pretty assiduously or you look at the smithsonian's study on whiteness and what they've been doing at the african american museum of history and they talk about characteristics of white, how to recognize whiteness and that sort of thing. You know what's interesting to me about that is it bears your point out. They don't really go into the slavery issue. They simply talk about white privilege and racism by mere dint of whiteness, by mere dint of being a majority white population. They don't they don't tie it to slavery. Now, I know 1619 and some do, but you're right to that point, to that extent. I think a lot of them are just looking at it as if we would have the same racist or systemically racist country irrespective of slavery, which is a really interesting thing to stop and consider from the point right. of view of the left, I suppose. Uh, and uh, today we don't see tyranny as a problem, right. but that's Lincoln's focus. That's right. why he thought slavery was evil, right. it was a form of tyranny. Right. Right. I think that's I think that's well put. The last thing I wanted to run by you is uh, and get your take on is just very quickly that you're referencing much of your column references something Tom Klingenstein wrote. He's been a guest on this show as well. Um, But but we are pretty convinced, are we all not that what we are fighting against here is a wokeness, if you will, but really at base, it's communism, it's Marxism. That is what this fight is about again, isn't it? Uh, well, I think that's uh, uh, your, the, the influence of, uh, of elites uh, who want to uh, turn this American story into some uh, theoretical Marxist story. Mm-hmm, yeah. uh, and uh, that is uh, the way of uh, pure evil. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, just total misunderstanding. And I, I don't think most American blacks buy it for a minute. Um, I mean, they they know their American roots uh, for both tragedy and, uh, and success. Uh, yeah, human uh, success. You right. You bet. Well, Ken, it was great to uh, visit with you again, and I really appreciate your essay and really all your all your all your work, Ken Masugi. Oh, bless you, sir. Remarks about our work here. You betcha. You betcha. And his book, The Rediscovery of America, Essays by Harry V. Jaffa on the New Birth of Politics. Merry Christmas and Godspeed, Ken. Uh, Likewise to you and your audience. Thank Thank you, you. sir.
Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Open lines Friday, 602-508-0960. I'm going to go to calls in just a second. I want to put one more thing on the table. And uh, if you're on hold, uh, we'll get to you shortly. Um, you may want to weigh in on this, too. It's it's kind of a pregnant issue. Uh, this was something Dennis uh, Prager had mentioned on his show earlier today. I was listening um, as I was coming in, and he was making the point that um, he doesn't believe that Trump will be and he isn't doesn't believe that Donald Trump should be the Republican nominee in 2024, not because he doesn't like him, as he said very clearly. I think Donald Trump was the best president in my lifetime. I simply don't think he can win, is what Dennis said. And all I really care about is not personalities, but defeating the left. And if I can't get a candidate that can win and help defeat the left, I'm going to waste my time promoting the candidate that can't win. Um, and, and he just literally believes that Donald Trump cannot win. And I was discussing it with you, Bill, a little bit because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily a popular thing for a conservative host, if we're being honest, to say, uh, although it's, it's, it's got its own obvious merits to it. And you made another point on this. You made a, a, a kind of an additional or I don't know if it's additional or, or, or separate, but you made a point and I, I wanted you to say it. It had to, you, you did it so well with me earlier. Would you make it for me in the audience? Because I wanted to say something about it and explore it with the audience. It might be, say, if the nominee is Ron DeSantis, that might be a nice advantage to peel off 5, 10 percent of the electorate from the left because they, it forces them to run their same playbook again of, you know, racist, uh, white supremacist, all that stuff. And it's so qu- quick after they used it on Trump that maybe they start to think, wait a minute, you, you just said that about the other guy. I thought he was a once in a lifetime threat. And he, maybe that- he was so anomalous. He was so uh, he was so different. He was so um, unqualified because of his racism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So your point is if we gave him a DeSantis or if we gave ourselves a DeSantis and gave the left a DeSantis as a punching bag, it it would force them into an odd place because they would, if I'm understanding you correctly, they would go to their default, which is play the race card. They have to, yeah. But it would be harder to play because it was so um ubiquitous four years prior it's like wait is is just everyone a racist now it's 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 hard to replay that game twice is your point right and they also can't play the january 6th card and they can't play anything january 6th with regard to desantis or any other republican nominee for that matter interesting will they be will they be um what will they be ashamed or even if they're not ashamed they probably wouldn't be ashamed i don't think they have any shame but would they lose? <laughs> would they lose audience? Would they lose votes because they're playing a tired card? They're playing a card that's been played and that and, and whose value has been so so diminished it doesn't work anymore. That's that's an interesting point. I'd love to throw it to the audience. I want to say something about it myself in a minute. Let's go to some of the calls on hold. Rob, you've been patient. Hi. How are you, sir? Well, I'm, I'm fine. Happy Friday. I'm kind of leaning on Bill's side. I mean, I, when it comes to uh, Donald Trump, I think there's a lot of uh, bagage going there. 
Yeah. Um, and obviously there's a lot of people who are looking at Ron DeSantis as a aggressive, tough, smart guy who's running successfully uh, a state that seems to be dealing with things like COVID really, really well. So that's, that's kind of where I'm looking at it. Mm-hmm. Well, there's time for that later when we've got plenty of time to talk about that. Sure, sure, One sure. Thing, uh, first, yeah, the first thing, uh, the COVID deal, uh, my sister, who's a year younger than me, she's 66, she lives in Lake St. Louis, which is about 40 miles west of St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah, do me a favor. Uh, I know you've been patient. I, I have to do this break. I don't have a choice. Can you hold, and I'll let you do this oh, on the other fine. side. This is part and parcel of what we were asking audience members earlier what was your relation? Uh, what has two years of co- heading on two years of COVID meant or done to you? Um, your family, your friends, your own situation, uh, your colleagues, your workplace. What um, what has been the effect of COVID on you in your experience? It's really quite an amazing set of stories we're getting. Um, I think almost all the calls, I think all of the calls we've had on this, Bill, correct me if I'm wrong, all of the calls we've had on this have to do with family. Um, some a little bit, yeah, tangential to work or tangential to school and stuff, but most of them are about family, which is interesting. It's still our first really organizing institution. Let me come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. And we're asking, well, a lot of questions, but one of them, your experience uh, with COVID now two years into it or the policies around it. Uh, Rob, thank you for your patience. You were just beginning to tell a story about your sister, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, my my sister's 66. Um, she... Uh, the last time I saw her was two and a half years ago. She flew out here, went to Williams, did the train over to Grand Canyon, and and it was great. Um, and then uh, she went back, and this was when I guess in you know March or so of 2020, um, everything started hitting the fan, uh, and she ended up. Uh, well, initially, if I remember right, both Fauci and. Uh, everybody else was talking about no need to mask, Nancy Pelosi, right? No need to mask, come visit Chinatown, all yep. that kind of stuff. Yep. And then not too long after that uh, uh, monologue that you gave earlier today involving Heather McDonald, which, by the way, you should have her on more often. Yeah, no, I should. No. Um, uh, it, 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 I think I called in and I said, you know, there's there's just something real sinister about all this, and I can't quite put my finger on it yet but um back then in i guess it was august or so of 2020 uh the cdc had actually come out on their website and said that of the i guess at the time 500,000 or so deaths uh 94 percent were deaths with covid and only six percent or seven percent were deaths directly from covid um, I had attended a funeral of a lady who died at age 66, uh, but she died with COVID. She actually died from uh, obesity and diabetes and a few other things. 
Um, and again, uh, going back to the August of 2020 CDC website, I don't see any more data that uh, shows, especially now with this whole Omicron nonsense, which is not very strong, um, that people are actually, or they're not differentiating between those who are dying with it or from it, which I think a lot of people need to really consider uh, again, because I think everybody's kind of forgotten about that. Uh, you know, we see in the headlines and the news, oh, yeah, we got more cases here in Arizona, and we got more cases here in, uh, you know, New York and wherever, but I don't have any information from the news sources that tell us that are there underlying conditions for uh, anything yeah, we, like we, that. Yeah, we stopped then, talking underlying conditions somewhere along the way, didn't we? Somewhere along the way yeah. uh, being after Joe Biden's uh, inaugural. Uh, the, the, That's right. The, 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 the things we knew were that um, there were a number, an awfully high number of people that were being categorized as COVID deaths that died yeah. irrespective of COVID, though they had tested exactly. positive for COVID within 60 days, which is itself right. uh, accounting yeah. that not other countries do. A, B, we learned the statistic that no one wanted to talk about, still does don't, which is that 78% of the fatalities with uh, or from COVID, irrespective of with or from, but 78% of them were in the obese population, and no one wanted to talk That's about right. that. The Chinatown right. stuff was kind of interesting. You're right to use the word sinister when you thought something sinister is going on. There were two major instances of it. Well, three. Yeah, you're right. You mentioned them. Uh, Fauci, who said on the Today Show, I'm not telling people they should change their lives. This was after Trump instituted a ban on travel from China. You may remember that. Right. And that's right. what encouraged this. Bill de Blasio taking it under uh, taking uh, taking it under his in into his hands went to a to a Chinatown and said, "Please do come. Uh, we aren't bigoted here. We want to celebrate. We're not like Trump." Nancy Pelosi did the same thing with Chinatown in California, and yeah, you're right. There was something sinister there. We saw another version of it when over a thousand uh, physicians who had told people not to engage in large outdoor activities said. Well, racism being worse than COVID, it's okay that they riot and protest under the banner of BLM, even though in every other case we do not want people in congregating into these kinds of crowds, indoors or outdoors. Yes, it was all driven by a, by by politics, and worse, it was a really gutter gutter form of politics. Yes, it used race, its own terrible thing, in politics. Um, but add to the fact that it also affected public health. Let me ask you the question, and let me ask any liberal or any conservative, ask anyone, have you asked them, anyone, really anyone, was it safer or less safe to tell people to come and visit and congregate in Chinatown shortly after COVID was discovered in America, and we stopped travel from China. What was the smarter thing to do? To say, please come and congregate, or don't? The question answers itself, 
because it was only a month later when those very same people, Fauci, Pelosi, um, de Blasio, were saying no more congregations, no more get-togethers. Do you remember in New York they were breaking up Jewish funerals? They were breaking up – I mean, yeah. I mean it was, it was an amazing thing how quickly that changed, which shows you that even they knew that they were wrong. But they've been wrong on any number of things. I don't know if Fauci's position was political or not. I, you know, he's a very odd duck to understand. I clearly understand what Pelosi and de Blasio were up to. And, uh, and, and, and let me just say Andrew Cuomo as well. He called Donald Trump a racist for his ban on travel from China. He went so far. Bill, how many times did you hear him say this? We, we listened to a lot of Andrew Cuomo press conferences. Ten times? He called it the European virus. Do you remember that? He did that. Why? Why would well for two reasons he did it. One, because it would countermand and counterinstruct and be the untrump thing, because you know, Donald Trump was fond of reminding people this came from China for a whole host of reasons, and most people would want to know where the etiology of a disease, etiology of a disease, of course. But he did it for another reason, too, which was it was becoming quite au courant uh, at that time, as you'll recall, to affix any problem in this country, not to something that could have ethnic or racial consequences. But if you could land it on the heads of something like European, which most people now know doesn't mean white, but still has an under underlaying meaning that we're talking about this being a white issue, the whites brought this. Um, it, it, it was a very perverse. It was very perverse, and it was involuted, and it was unscientific, and it was politics at its most rotten. There's a lot of politics still being played. I want to do some of that when we come back. We'll be right back. The European virus infected the Northeast while the White House was still fixated on China. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Another another thing, you've heard me say this, it bothers me a great deal about Omicron, a great deal. When we first heard news of it, what was it, about the last week of November or so, out of South Africa, um, the first thing everyone wanted to know, obviously, was were the vaccines going to... Um, help us against Omicron? Were they going to be effective in mitigating the effects of Omicron, the Omicron variant? And story after story, scientists unsure whether vaccines protect against Omicron. Uh, doctors investigating whether, you know, vaccines affect, are affected by Omicron or Omicron can be affected by the vaccines. Story after story. And then those just went away. And for the past month now, well, not even, for the past three weeks now, it's all been from the White House and its uh, affiliates and, and, uh, and, uh, and adjuncts get vaccinated to protect yourself against Omicron. Um, in fact, uh, the coronavirus czar, the coronavirus advisor to Joe Biden, someone you don't really see very much, which is interesting, 
but his name is Dr. Um, Dr. Zients, uh, Jeff Zients. He Z I E N T S. He has um, he has been saying the same thing for the past forty eight hours, uh, as has Dr. Fauci. That you need to get the a vaccine. You need to be vaccinated to um, save uh, the community from uh, the Omicron variant. Um, Jeff Zients even said, for the unvaccinated, you're looking at a winter of severe illness and death, echoing or aping what uh, Joe Biden said. Uh, he said, uh, Jeff Zients went on to say, the more people get vaccinated, the less severe this Omicron outbreak will be. What study was done to show that all those doubts early on have been solved, all those doubts have been erased and that the vaccines are good with the Omicron. There is a new study out of Columbia University, not an unrespected university, just came out. New study out of Columbia University says the Omicron variant is markedly resistant to vaccines and boosters might not do much to help. According to the study, authored by more than 20 scientists at Columbia University and the University of Hong Kong, Quote, a striking feature of this variant is the large number of spike mutations that pose a threat to the efficacy of current COVID-19 vaccines and antibody therapies. Who's following what science? That's my question. Who's following what science? It's posturing. It's theater. And it's guerrilla warfare playing on your emotions, your fears and all of our health. Please rid us of this meddlesome priest. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 